and welcome to the first lecture of the 1991 Rare Book School. There will, as I hope you know, be lectures tomorrow night, John Parker, and Thursday night, Bill Reese as well. The particulars are on posters which are on the bulletin board down the hall. After the lecture this evening, you are invited to look at the hallway exhibition if you have not yet seen it, uh, with catalog in hand, a copy of which you will be presented with uh, on your way out of this room if you don't already have one. I tried unsuccessfully to persuade our speakers this evening to title his talk, Issues in Bibliographical Studies Since 1941, but he wouldn't do it. It is, however, a pleasure to welcome G. Thomas Tansel, speaking on issues in bibliographical studies since 1942. <laughs> Thank you, Terry. I'll explain why the title has the date 1942. This paper was written for the centennial of the Bibliographical Society in London, and that takes place next year. When the Bibliographical Society, in 1942, celebrated the 50th anniversary of its founding, it was in the position of having nurtured and brought to maturity an entire discipline. The study of the structure of books, which had effectively begun in the 1860s with Henry Bradshaw's work on Incunabula, was provided a forum after 1892 in the Bibliographical Society's publications and meetings. And the repeated appearance in this forum of several great scholars gave further stimulation to the development of the field. One cannot recount the history of bibliography in its modern form without telling the story of the Bibliographical Society. And the Society's important 50th anniversary volume, Studies in Retrospect, was simultaneously an account of the Society and a survey of the field. Another half century has now gone by, and the centennial of this society is a natural occasion on which to think about what has happened to the field since 1942. Unlike many anniversaries, that 50th birthday marked a real dividing line. It occurred in the midst of war when scholarship, like everything else, was disrupted. Partly because of wartime difficulties, the Jubilee volume did not appear until 1945, the year the war ended. The midpoint of the century was at hand, and the years ahead beckoned as a time of new beginnings, a time for rebuilding in every field of endeavor. This mood was caught by F.C. Francis in the last sentence of his historical sketch of the society in the 1945 volume. If we feel we have come to the end of one generation of members, he said, we know that we shall be able to use their work as the starting point of our own, and their achievements will be the inspiration to carry us on to another 50 years of progress. The passing of a generation was symbolized by the deaths during the war years of two of the three figures who had dominated the field during the previous half century. R.B. McCarrow in 1940 and A.W. Pollard in 1944. The third, W.W. Gregg, lived on until 1959 and embodied the transition that Francis predicted. 
for his bibliography of the English printed drama to the Restoration was the monument that summarized the first half-century's achievements in descriptive bibliography, and his The Rationale of Copy Text served as the focal point for discussions of scholarly editing in the second half-century. Among those returning to academic life after the war was Fredson Bowers, who immediately established his position as the dominant force of the new era by the inauguration of an annual volume, Studies in Bibliography, and by the publication of Principles of Bibliographical Description. Bowers was clearly <coughs> building on the work stimulated by the Bibliographical Society, but his principal forum became the new Bibliographical Society he helped establish at his own university, <coughs> the University of Virginia. This society has a central place in any history of bibliographical development in the second half of the century, for it is associated not only with Bowers' standards for bibliographical description, but with the fostering through the pages of studies in bibliography of new techniques of analytical bibliography and new approaches to textual criticism. Indeed, the course of bibliographical discussion during the past 50 years has been shaped by the direction given these three areas in the two decades after 1948 in studies in bibliography and in Bowers's own writings. And his death this year, almost at the end of the Bibliographical Society's second half century, reinforces the present impulse for retrospection. The questions that have been taken up over these years, however, are inevitable ones which go to the heart of bibliographical endeavor. It could be said that this period has been characterized by vigorous, even sometimes rancorous, debates about fundamental issues, the kind of questioning of established viewpoints that marks a mature discipline. The first half century, though not without its controversies, could be thought of as reflecting a sense of common adventure to use F.C. Francis's phrase for describing the genius of Pollard's contributions to the Bibliographical Society, the shared excitement of exploring new uses for the physical evidence in books and of publicizing those discoveries. It is a measure of the success of those efforts that the resulting body of work had the substance and stature to be regarded in retrospect as the product of orthodoxy. Questioning established viewpoints and procedures can only follow their establishment, and the debates of the second half century grew out of the work of the first. One way of summarizing the evolution of the field over the last five decades is to look at the principal issues that have concerned those working in descriptive and analytical bibliography and scholarly editing. And I believe that in each of these areas, there is a single central issue that illuminates the development and present position of the discipline. In descriptive bibliography, the issue is whether bibliographies should be conceived of primarily as guides for the identification of particular editions and impressions, or as full-fledged works of historical and biographical scholarship. Bowers's principles of bibliographical description inaugurated the new half-century with a firm statement of the contours of descriptive bibliography as a scholarly discipline. In so doing, Bowers was building on the English tradition of Bradshaw, Pollard, McCarrow, and Gregg, 
all of whom recognized the fundamental significance of book structure and set their minds to formulating concise and unambiguous ways of describing it. The principles summarized procedures that had become relatively well established, largely through bibliographical society publications, among scholars dealing with 15th, 16th, and 17th century printed books. But it was nevertheless a startling work, for never before had the rationale for bibliographical description been so comprehensively set forth or the implications of the procedure been so thoroughly enumerated. The importance of fully rounded descriptions of books, not limited to points considered necessary for identification, was made clear on page after page by precept and by example. Such descriptions put on record some of the details out of which printing and publishing history, as well as biography, can be built up and they contribute to the process whereby new additions, printings, issues, and states are discovered. Descriptive bibliography, as presented in the principles, was a demanding historical discipline. With this message, the book was an inspiration to some and a burden to others. But to all who wished to undertake a bibliography, it was a presence that could not be ignored. It may be wondered why, in the face of so rigorous a delineation of the field, anyone would try to defend the idea that a bibliography need record only the physical details that are required for identification and need not attempt a full description. But an alternative tradition already existed. The genre of guides for collectors concentrating on points for identification had developed from the last quarter of the 19th century as 19th century and then 20th century authors began to be popular subjects for collecting. The contrast between the two traditions led some people to think that books from earlier centuries necessitated fuller treatment than books from later times, and simultaneously that bibliographies for scholars had to be different from bibliographies for collectors. The fallaciousness of these notions was well understood as early as the 1920s by Michael Sadler, whose bibliography of Trollope, 1928, is a landmark in its explicit aim of contributing to book trade history and its consequent recognition of the importance of analyzing book structure, even for modern books. Bibliographia, Studies in Book History and Book Structure, was the title Sadler gave to a series of books he edited in the 1930s, drawing on such like-minded members of the book trade as John Carter and Percy Muir. When Sadler came to write the essay on the 19th century for the Bibliographical Society anniversary volume, he asserted that an emphasis on publishing history was expected of descriptive bibliographies, a position that was reaffirmed soon afterward in Richard Purdy's bibliography of Hardy. Bowers's inclusion in the principles of a section on 19th and 20th century books provided an even stronger endorsement of the view that the same standards are applicable to books of all periods. Yet the idea that 19th and 20th century books can be given a simpler treatment than earlier books dies hard. Even Donald Gallup, whose well-known bibliographies of T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound are excellent in some respects, 
has maintained that signature collation is unnecessary for 20th century books, and he thus carries over into relatively sophisticated work some traces of the old concept of recording only what is thought to be necessary for identification. There have been many other bibliographies since 1949 that, while perhaps following the principles in some respects, reject the major lesson it has to teach. A failure to grasp the full significance of this lesson, the status of descriptive bibliography as historical scholarship, lies at the heart of the various lesser questions relating to bibliographical description that have repeatedly been discussed, sometimes with great urgency, during the last 50 years. They are all symptoms of the one underlying problem, not major issues in their own right. For example, some people have objected to the formula <clears throat> for signature collation codified by Bowers as too technical and arcane. The most famous complaints of this kind came from Jeffrey Keynes, who believed, in the words of his autobiography, that the recommended notation would have been incomprehensible to the audience for my series of bibliographies, book collectors, booksellers, and even many librarians. He added, I preferred to give readers less pedantry and more humanity. Whether the system of notation can really be regarded as difficult is not the primary question. What is remarkable about his position is the resistance to scholarship that it seems to reflect. An open-minded acceptance of descriptive bibliography as a branch of historical scholarship by virtue of being concerned with the study and classification of one category of artifact, would lead to rather different conclusions. It would cause one to see that all readers of bibliographies, whether professional scholars or not, and there will be many in both categories, are on a scholarly mission seeking accurate information about the past that they are not well served if the research that has been undertaken is not reported with precision, and that precision need not rob the work of humanity. A view similar to Keynes's has been expressed by Hermann Liebert, who stated in his Feldman lecture, Bibliography Old and New, that a proliferation of measurements in a bibliographical description makes the work more technological than humanistic. Such a position is not flattering to the humanities, suggesting that precision is foreign to them, and it clearly springs from a failure to think of bibliography as history. That people like Keynes and Liebert, each of whom served as president of a bibliographical society, could hold these attitudes is an indication of how powerful is the strain of thinking that links scholarship with a cold and inhumane professionalism, not recognizing that all work is a product of human striving and that the most satisfaction comes from striving on the highest attainable level. Another area of debate concerns the relative proportions within a bibliography, the question of how to abbreviate the descriptions of books that can be regarded as less important than others. Following the publication of William B. Todd's Bibliography of Burke, 1964, in which the quantity of descriptive detail varied according to the perceived significance of the items described, 
There was an exchange of letters in the Times Literary Supplement about the so-called degressive principle, showing that it was still, after 60 years, a live issue. The most judicious discussion of the matter came shortly thereafter from Fredson Bowers, whose 1967 Bibliographical Society address, Bibliography Revisited, was his most important supplement to the principles. His main point was that although abbreviated descriptions can sometimes be justified for certain categories of material, the research underlying those descriptions cannot be abbreviated. He was saying, in effect, that variations in copiousness of detail should reflect the emphases of the bibliography, not the amount of work that the bibliographer has done. That this whole matter became an issue at all is another sign of how little bibliography has been thought of as historical scholarship. It is well understood that historians who write narrative histories will expand or contract their treatment of certain subjects depending on the aims and focus of the accounts they are constructing. Descriptive bibliographers must similarly shape their work into coherent accounts since every historical reconstruction involves selection. Neglect of this point also underlies the controversy over whether photographic facsimiles of title pages can take the place of quasi-facsimile transcriptions. The best-known criticism of the practice of transcription occurs in David Foxon's pamphlet, Thoughts on the History and Future of Bibliographical Description. But his argument does not spring from a conception of a bibliographical description as a verbal historical account, which may, of course, be supplemented, but not in part supplanted, by illustrations. The decision whether or not to provide transcriptions would logically rest on the overall scope and proportions of a given bibliography and would be a separate question from the decision whether or not to include illustrations of title pages. Although these several debates have sometimes seemed unproductive, the half century as a whole does show a clear forward movement. Whereas scholars of incunabula and Renaissance books were largely responsible for establishing the foundations of descriptive bibliography, scholars of 18th, 19th, and 20th century books have since 1950 taken the lead in extending and refining the procedures. The best of their bibliographies have increasingly reflected a sense of descriptive bibliography as a form of biography, a view epitomized in the title of Dan Lawrence's Engelhard lecture, A Portrait of the Author as a Bibliography. In a time of massive biographies, author bibliographies have become full-bodied accounts of careers told through the details of book production and distribution history. This development has been aided by the presence of three post-war publishing outlets for scholarly bibliographies. The Soho series, which has included David Gilson's bibliography of Jane Austen, Dan Lawrence's of Bernard Shaw, and William Peterson's of the Kelmscott Press. The Pittsburgh bibliographies, which has included J.M. Edelstein's bibliography of Wallace Stevens, and Fraser Clark's of Hawthorne. And the series now called the Linton Massey Bibliographies, published by the Bibliographical Society of the University of Virginia, which has included the revision of Bloomfield and Mendelssohn's Bibliography of Auden. 
The principle that concise descriptions must be based on thorough research has also been well illustrated in this period by several bibliographies of large scope, among them Jacob Blank's Bibliography of American Literature, David Foxon's English Verse, 1701-1750, and Catherine Ponser's Revision of the Short Title Catalog, the landmark publication of the Bibliographical Society's second half-century, the first volume of which appeared in 1976 on the 50th anniversary of the publication of the original edition, which was the great landmark of its first half-century. At present, the most innovative work in descriptive bibliography is, fittingly, coming from Bowers's successor as editor of Studies in Bibliography, David L. Vandermeulen, who has published some byproducts of his major investigation of Pope. There is no better way to gain a sense of where descriptive bibliography now stands than to read his Engelhard lecture, Where Angels Fear to Tread. In it, one recognizes that the goal Sadler enunciated in the 1945 Bibliographical Society volume foreshadowed the direction of the next half century. If the, se the central issue that illuminates the history of bibliographical description in the last 50 years relates to the fundamental nature of what a descriptive bibliography is, the central issue for analytical bibliography has been a questioning of its very existence. This challenge has come from two directions. One kind of criticism questions the validity of the conclusions that emerge from bibliographical analysis. The other asks what role these conclusions, if they can be established, have in the broader study of the way books have affected society. Analytical bibliography, or the examination of the physical evidence in books, is of course involved in the process of description. But many people have engaged in it without the aim of producing full physical descriptions, and it developed in the first half of the century as a distinct area of endeavor. The stage had been set by the earlier work of Bradshaw, Proctor, and Pollard on incunables, and the recognition by a few Renaissance scholars early in the century that bibliographical evidence was crucial to the editing of Elizabethan and Jacobean drama set the new direction for the field. By the time F.P. Wilson wrote his splendid essay on Shakespeare and the new bibliography, for the Bibliographical Society anniversary volume, such landmarks as Pollard's Shakespeare Folios and Quartos, 1909, Maccaro's Introduction to Bibliography for Literary Students, 1927, and Gregg's The Variance in the First Quarto of King Lear, 1940, had appeared, along with a number of articles that helped to give substance to the movement. What was new about this approach was that it used physical clues present in each book as the basis for trying to identify compositorial stints, the method of proofreading, and other details of a book's printing history that would have a bearing on editorial decisions regarding the correctness of the text in it. Two scholars who began to pursue this kind of work just prior to the entry of America into the war were Fredson Bowers and Charlton Hinman, and after the war they became its leading practitioners, each producing by the 1960s a major statement. 
Hinman's The Printing and Proofreading of the First Folio of Shakespeare, 1963, was both an introduction to the method and a detailed case study explaining the various techniques of bibliographical analysis in the process of offering a page-by-page account of the printing of the folio. Bowers's bibliography and textual criticism the next year provided a theoretical grounding for the examination of bibliographical evidence, assessing the degrees of certainty that could be expected of bibliographical analysis under varying circumstances and exploring its role in textual and indirectly in literary criticism. Bowers played a further role as editor of Studies in Bibliography, welcoming to its pages during the 1950s and 60s analytical papers by such scholars as W. Craig Ferguson, Robert K. Turner, Alice Walker, George Walton Williams, and Philip Williams. Work of this kind was also appearing in the library and the papers of the Bibliographical Society of America. And the 50s and 60s can be seen in retrospect as its heyday. Into this setting in 1969 came D.F. Mackenzie's Printers of the Mind, published in Studies in Bibliography. This long essay examined a number of conclusions that had been drawn by analytical bibliographers about the way particular books were printed, and in each case questioned the validity of those conclusions. The implication was that scholars might better spend their time making available the details to be found in surviving printers' records. That this effectively presented essay put a damper on what had become a major industry within bibliographical scholarship is undeniable. In one respect, this result was desirable, for there had been some instances in which scholars caught up in the general excitement came too hastily to conclusions about the significance of patterns they had found in their data and were too quick to generalize on the basis of their findings. This danger is ever-present in research, of course, but a reminder of the difficulties of dealing responsibly with inductive evidence was not out of place. That some people would form the idea that analytical bibliography was thereby discredited, however, is a depressing indication of how misunderstood the nature of bibliographical research can be. If books as physical objects are the subject of bibliographers' investigations, there is no way that the examination of those objects for clues to their own manufacture can be discredited. The examination may not always be conducted responsibly, but the search must go on for the books themselves constitute the primary body of evidence about their own production. Printers' records and other documents external to the books should not be neglected, but they can offer only secondary evidence for this purpose. More recently, the value of analytical bibliography has been challenged in a different way, but the underlying cause is a similar similar failure to understand fully the significance of reading the physical evidence in books as well as the texts in them. The texts, in fact, are also physical. In the last three decades, since the appearance of Fevre and Martin's L'Apparition du Livre, 1958, a number of historians in the English-speaking world have been influenced by the French school of Histoire du Livre, 
and the study of printing and publishing as a force in intellectual and cultural history has become a prominent topic. Two of the best-known products of this approach, both appearing in 1979, are Robert Darnton's The Business of Enlightenment, based on the archives of the printer of Diderot's Encyclopédie, and Elizabeth Eisenstein's The Printing Press as an Agent of Change, dealing with what she calls cultural transformations in the first two centuries of printing. Most of the historians working in this area, including these two, have had little acquaintance with bibliographical scholarship and tend to prefer archival evidence over the physical evidence present in printed matter. There is sometimes the implication that analytical bibliography seen as a key element of an Anglo-American school of printing history, is too narrowly focused and has little to contribute to the study of the role of the printed book in society. This kind of view is oblivious to the effect of the printing process on the transmission of texts and the consequent role of physical evidence in textual study. Such tedious work as the tabulation of recurring types and of patterns in the reuse of settings of headlines leads to the detailed reconstruction of the course of individual books through the printing process and the discovery of how certain features of the text came to be what they are. A concern with the social repercussions of printing is ultimately a concern with texts, with what works and what texts of those works were disseminated through printing at particular times. The study of variations in texts and the reasons for them is therefore basic to the broadest concerns of intellectual history. And analytical bibliography is thus fundamental not only to the history of printing, but to book history in its newest sense. The challenges to analytical bibliography have received considerable attention but all the while there have been scholars pursuing the work. Peter Blaney, Trevor Howard Hill, M.P. Jackson, and Paul Wurstein, for example, have recently been adding to the store of detail about English Renaissance printing. And although the bulk of the analytical work since 1942 has been devoted to Renaissance books, a good start has been made on books of other periods. William B. Todd's work on the 18th century has now been followed by David Vandermeulen's. The study of incunables <clears throat> has been enlivened by the analytical approach of Lotta Hellinger, Paul Needham, and Felix Oyens. And both Needham and Vandermeulen can be seen as successors to Alan Stevenson, whose work on the use of paper as evidence was one of the great accomplishments of analytical bibliography in the earlier part of this half century. Analysis of 19th and 20th century books, given spectacular encouragement in 1934 by John Carter and Graham Pollard's inquiry into the nature of certain 19th century pamphlets, has thus far occurred mainly, and on a modest scale, in the pages of author bibliographies and scholarly editions. For background and methodology, the major effort, along with the basic books of Hinman and Bowers, is Philip Gaskell's A New Introduction to Bibliography, 1972. It is indispensable as a guide to book production history, despite the fact that it is no guide at all to most of the techniques of bibliographical analysis, 
thus enshrining in a standard reference book the skepticism about analytical bibliography that has marked recent decades. High among other general treatments are two thoughtful essays by Peter Davison on the marshalling of bibliographical evidence and its role in editing. Although the details of printing history are of interest in their own right, analytical bibliography, as it has developed from the early days of the Bibliographical Society, has never been far from editorial concerns. And this conjunction is what truly distinguishes the Anglo-American approach to book history. The issues in analytical bibliography have therefore had to be faced by editors. But the central issue for textual criticism has been the place of authorial intention among the goals of scholarly editing. This issue is essentially new. In the long history of textual criticism, the supremacy of authorial intention had scarcely been questioned before the middle of the 20th century. Editors did sometimes amend a documentary text with, reader, with readings more to their liking, but they usually justified their actions by believing that the emendations were what the authors must have intended. The idea of textual corruption has regularly implied that the standard from which the corrupt form deviated was the form intended by the author. Certainly those who were developing modern analytical bibliography in the early decades of the Bibliographical Society agreed that the goal toward which they were working was the establishment of texts that would reflect the author's wishes as far as surviving evidence permitted. What was at issue was not the goal, but how best to achieve it, an issue that came down to the question of how large a role editor's judgment should have in editing. Macero, responding to what he regarded as the irresponsible eclecticism of his predecessors, displayed in his 1904 edition of Nash a reluctance to trust editorial judgment very far. Some time passed before the editors of English Renaissance drama came around to the liberal view that A.E. Hausman had been advocating from the early years of the century, as in his Manilius of 1903. But the movement during the first half of the century was in this direction. Even though Macaro's Prolegomena for the Oxford Shakespeare, published at the beginning of the war, was still guarded, if less so than his earlier position, about the centrality of judgment in editorial procedure. This situation abruptly changed after the war. With W.W. Gregg's 1949 English Institute paper, the rationale of copy text. In proposing that textual authority might be divided between two editions, an early one for punctuation and spelling and a later one for verbal variance, he was also suggesting that editorial judgment was the key to distinguishing substantive variants that were authorial from those that were not. He did not maintain, as had frequently been done before him, that if one detected the author's hand in some of the variants of a later edition, one had to adopt all the variants, except obvious errors, from that edition. This reliance on judgment, though it marked a new stage in the modern evolution of editorial procedures for English Renaissance drama, 
was not what made Gregg's rationale become an issue of debate. The controversy arose in the first instance over the extension of Gregg's approach to periods later than the Renaissance. In the 1964 volume of Studies in Bibliography, Bowers showed how Gregg's reasoning could be applied to 19th century American authors, and the Modern Language Association set up a center for editions of American authors with Gregg's rationale as its guiding principle. Multi-volume editions of major American authors soon began appearing, and in this way Gregg's rationale came to have an enormous influence. The idea that it had received institutional sanction was enough to cause some people to object to it, arguing that no one approach could fit all circumstances. Many of these arguments were misguided, for Gregg's approach was not prescriptive, and it's in, in its extended form, it was really only a framework for thinking about situations in which the evidence was not conclusive, as the variety of treatments in published CEAA volumes testifies. Gregg had insisted that his rationale was not philosophical or theoretical, but practical. That choosing an early text as copy text, relying on its readings whenever there does not appear to be convincing reason to alter them, maximizes one's chances of producing a text reflecting the author's intention. It is therefore not a criticism of Gregg to argue that in a particular instance, either an author's personal habits or the treatment of that author's texts by printers and publishers points away from an early text as the best choice. For Gregg had not suggested that his general guideline should prevail except when the evidence is inconclusive. A more productive line of argument and a recurrent one from the late 1960s onward concerns the definition of authorial intention itself. Even those textual critics who accept as their goal the construction of authorially intended texts have often recognized that this goal requires further clarification. One issue has been whether an author's final manuscript or the first edition set from it is in general the preferable choice for copy text when both exist. Bowers's logical extension of Gregg's reasoning to periods from which authors' manuscripts more commonly survive favors the manuscript over its derivative printed edition. Other scholars, such as Philip Gaskell, in some of the examples in From Writer to Reader, have argued for the first edition on the grounds that authors expect certain kinds of alterations to be made in their manuscript texts during the publication process. The debate obviously turns on whether personal intention can usefully be defined to incorporate the expectation of actions on the part of others. Another issue has been whether in cases of authorial revision, an author's first or last or intermediate intention should take precedence. Gregg focused on final intention at each point of revision, though he understood that sometimes early and late versions are best thought of as separate works to be edited independently. A different viewpoint held by a number of European textual theorists 
and publicized by some Shakespearean editors of the 1980s, emphasizes the evolution of texts and asserts that elements from different versions of a work must not be mixed. It often fails, however, to distinguish conceptually between a version of a work and the text that happens to be preserved in a particular document. Despite the flaws frequently present in efforts to promote one or another version of a work, these discussions have served to call attention to the fact that an author's textual intentions are not always static and that an editor is therefore obligated to try to distinguish revisions that refine the previous conception of a work and thus do not produce a distinct version from those that do reflect an altered conception of a work and thus result in an independent version. Such questions, particularly those involving the relation of intention to expectation, lead directly toward the challenges made in the 1980s to the dominance of authorial intention as the goal of editing. The stage had been set at the beginning of the 1970s by Morse Peckham's Reflections on the Foundations of Modern Textual Editing, which criticized Gregg's rationale for reinforcing what Peckham regarded as an unrealistic separation of the author from others involved in the production of printed texts. But the issue became more prominent in editorial debate in the 1980s as a result of the writings of Jerome McGann and D.F. McKenzie. In a critique of modern textual criticism, 1983, and many other pieces, McGann argues that literature is a collaborative art, the result of a number of people working together, and that the editor who strives to segregate an author's uninfluenced intentions is working toward an artificial goal. In his view, the alterations of publishers' editors are not corruptions of a pure authorial text, but a natural part of the social process of bringing the text of a work to the public. The author's intentions, or even the author's expectations, are only one element in the combined intentions of the collaborative group. Mackenzie's emphasis is different, but he too is interested in the social side of literary production as the title of his Panizzi Lectures of 1986, Bibliography and the Sociology of Texts, suggests. Mackenzie is especially concerned with the physical presentation of texts as part of the social milieu in which reading takes place. And he examines the role of typography, layout, and format in affecting readers' responses. Indeed, he argues that bibliographical studies as a whole should be regarded as a sociology of texts. Both Mackenzie and McGann, despite lapses in the logic of their arguments, have performed a valuable service in encouraging readers to think about the importance of the wording and the formal presentation of the texts that were actually made available to people in the past. It is unfortunate, however, that they have considered their position to entail a criticism of authorial intention as an editorial goal. Texts as publicly distributed in the past and texts as conceived by the minds that initiated them 
are both, obviously, valid subjects for historical study, but they can rarely be accommodated by a single scholarly text. The former interest can be served by facsimile editions, but the latter frequently necessitates editions with critically emended texts. Failure to recognize that different kinds of editions may be required to satisfy different historical interests has weakened many of the editorial debates of the past half century. But even if the criticisms of the Greg Bowers approach have not always been cogent, the discussions stimulated by Greg's rationale throughout this period have unquestionably served to broaden our understanding of textual issues. In each of these branches of bibliographical endeavor, the pattern of the past five decades, and particularly of the past three, can be described as the questioning of what have been regarded as established principles and procedures. Not infrequently during these years, one has heard it said that bibliography is in a state of crisis. But such alarmist language seems to me inappropriate for characterizing what has occurred. I would instead take these debates as a sign of the maturity of the field and as an indication of its vitality. They are not the debates of a formative period. What could be thought of in the 1940s as the new bibliography is now approached as an orthodoxy. Disciplines move in and out of positions of centrality, and the kinds of discussions that have been taking place in bibliographical and textual study demonstrates that bibliography is moving closer to the center of scholarly argument than it has been before. It is still far from being a basic element in the thinking of literary and historical scholars, but they are increasingly recognizing it, whether favorably or unfavorably, with a depth of feeling that reveals how fundamental its concerns are. An age of literary theory they understood. Whether one is a new critic, a structuralist, or a deconstructionist, whether one is interested in authors or publishers' intentions or readers' responses, one takes a position, implicitly if not explicitly, regarding the status of words on paper. What textual criticism in its long history has always implied is that the texts of documents are to be distinguished from the texts of works. Since language is intangible, works made of language are intangible. And the tangible texts we find in written and printed documents are the potentially flawed attempts to transmit such works. Even literary critics not interested in historical approaches to literature must decide whether to accept texts as they stand in particular documents or to make alterations in them. Analytical bibliography, in turn, provides techniques for examining documents so as to uncover physical evidence that may help explain how the texts came to be constituted as they are. And descriptive bibliography offers a way to display this evidence along with external evidence 
so as to provide comprehensive accounts of the production of particular documents. Although analytical and descriptive bibliography serve other purposes as well, their development has been largely fostered by their integral place in textual criticism. Those who founded the Bibliographical Society a century ago would probably not have explained the unity of their field as stemming from the effort to grapple with the distinction between documents and works. But an understanding of that distinction, however formulated, was perhaps the dominant impulse behind their work and that of their successors. And it is what may eventually bring textual criticism and literary critics together. The issues that have dominated bibliographical studies in recent years are indicative of greater interaction between the two groups. Textual criticism, after all, involves literary judgment, and literary criticism, indeed the act of reading, involves questioning the makeup of texts. The bibliographical way of thinking, as developed over the past century, not only is fundamental to the reading of written and printed matter in all fields, but also points the way to the study of all tangible records of works in intangible media. The announcement that this view has become an orthodoxy, however, must await a future anniversary of the Bibliographical Society. Thank you. see photographs of many of the people that Tansel mentioned in this lecture, you do not have to see a photograph of Felix Oyens, who's in the back of the room, although you can, because he is present uh, in both states this evening. It's a pleasure to welcome him here. Uh, please take a copy of the exhibition on your way out of the room at the exhibition catalog, and uh, when you get bored with it, or indeed, instead of entirely, come to 523 for conversation with the speaker and a glass of wine. Thank you for coming. <laughs>